This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at Kevin Kautzman and at Brad Kelly. We're back with another fun-filled, excitement-packed episode of Heart of Darkness. Brad, how are you? I'm doing great, man. How are you? I am doing okay. Okay. And, I'd say uh, sometimes that's the, yeah. all you can ask for. Well, it's been quite a week, a uh, couple of weeks researching today's uh, subject. Uh, today, we are going to talk about the singular modern novelist uh, and the one of the preeminent figures in the feminist movement uh, that would ha- that would occur um, during, but also after her life, Virginia Woolf. Mm. And let's let's begin with the perhaps the cliche: uh, Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Brad, I will answer the question. Yeah. Knock knock. Who's there? I am. <laughs> I am, and I Fair have enough. been terrified of uh, taking this on. It, this is not the easiest subject. I think we talked about on a previous episode, the Kafka episode, how this Virginia might be our, our first suicide. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Woo! <laughs> right. Yeah, so I want to, I want to pre- preface this episode with a few things, uh, two or three ideas that I have. The first thing is, uh, I, I don't really want to give a trigger warning. I don't believe in such things, but if, uh, if ever you're, you're having suicidal thoughts, go and get the help that you need and you deserve. I think, Brad, you'd probably second that. Yeah, I think uh, so. Yeah, people, you know, even people in your own life, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Virginia certainly had help and worked mm-hmm. on this. So I, I want to say that to begin. Um, the second thing I want to say is uh, if you, well, we'll get to it during the episode, a room of, of, uh, of one's own is this incredibly biting work of essays about the dearth of women's voices in history, simply because they were not educated and or not allowed or simply didn't have enough time to, to write. And we are two men <laughs> from the United States yeah. who are endeavoring to tackle uh, the mind and the work and some of the biography of one of the greatest writers. Um, so I just want to be sensitive and mindful of that, uh, sure. given, yeah. given that. I think that's, I think that's reasonable. Yeah. 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 I don't want to dwell too much in id poll and all of that garbage because it's a way to sort of avoid actually talking about anything. But in this case, I think it's, it's worth saying, um, yeah. you know, and then in, in addition to that though, in that, in that great book of essays, Virginia was uh, pretty, firm in comparing the plight of women in terms of uh, artistry and writing historically to the plight of the working class as well. Mm. She drew comparisons. uh, And I think we still see this issue in the arts today where uh, there is a, again, a dearth of voices from the people who simply 
can't afford the time uh, or the leisure to sit down and think about what it is they want to say and why. Would you say that's fair, Brad? Yeah, I think I think that's true. Certainly, yeah, especially the writing. Writing, uh, uh, there's. It, it, there's not a lot of obvious ROI uh, to writing. And so, though I think there really is a deep R, uh, return on investment of that time and energy, but, but uh, you know, for, for people grow, growing up working class and blue collar, and it seems like kind of a waste of time, as long as you can basically understand some instructions and beyond that, um, what's it getting you? You know, what's so. it what's it getting you exactly yeah. well it's funny we're getting a little out of order here but I, I do want to say she has a great quote from a room of her own mm-hmm. uh which is the name of the book i i uh, got it wrong initially but it's a room of her own she has a this quote money dignifies what is frivolous if unpaid for right. and i want to say we have a patreon if you want to support <laughs> that's right art of darkness and unusual biographies of creative people uh we yeah. certainly invite you to chuck a buck and dignify uh our frivolity yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, dignifying my frivolity since 19 whatever <laughs> 1928 yeah. uh yeah so uh, the third thing uh, i want to say i'll say after i i ask our typical question uh because it's going to get into the structure but the, the mm-hmm. typical question is brad what do you know about virginia wolf um, I know a bit about Virginia Woolf, uh, you know, being an English undergrad and uh, having some teachers who were very interested in English, you know, modern, the modernist movement, uh, which is, you know, a fascinating part of literary and cultural history to me. Um, and Virginia Woolf being um, a leading light among that group. Um I believe I've read, uh, I read a, a good chunk of A Room of Her Own. I read uh, To the Lighthouse, which is amazing. Incredible. Um, yeah. Mrs. Dalloway, which is also a top, top tier novel. Um, and there's one called, hmm, is it Waves? The Waves. The Waves. Okay. That's why I wasn't sure if it was Waves or a wave. Or, um, yeah. And that's also, also, I, I read that. I have very dim recollections of it, but I remember it being quite good. Um, yeah. She was, uh, she was a real innovator. She had, my take was that she was a writer who had tapped into the, European or Western world subconscious in a, in a, in a way on par with the James Joyce's of the world. Yeah. Right. And you mentioned James Joyce, you mm-hmm. mentioned Mrs. Dalloway. She mm-hmm. intentionally structured that novel to be a day in the life mm-hmm. uh, as, as Ulysses. So Mrs. Oh. Dalloway is a day in June. Ulysses is a day in June. Mm-hmm. We're dealing with um, a woman who was at the very heart of the artistic scene in London, the literary scene in London, and modernism. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, uh, I guess, thesis for this episode is that I think we're dealing with a, a psychologist on par with Freud. Oh, I really? think that okay. she was she was uh, a student of her own psychology, but of the the psychology of the modern condition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you could make a, make an argument. Obviously, she wasn't doing clinical work, but she was doing a kind of literary work that I think rivals uh, Freud's attempt to understand the machinations of the human mind. And with that in mind, you mentioned the waves. And I want you to just in the theater of your mind, just Mm -hmm. allow some wind and the waves crashing 
sort of roll over you. These metaphors uh, are so central to her work, and she is, and the, and she is an innovator. Was an innovator of the idea of stream of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And the waves rolling, mm-hmm. and I know it's really tempting when we do these biographical episodes to to start at the beginning yeah. and march through the life, and we're not going to do that. If yeah, you want to, Wolf wouldn't want wouldn't want that. Of course not. <laughs> of course not. Uh, her her great novel Orlando, which was based on one of her friends, has her friend aging from the age of sixteen uh, to I can't recall which age, starting as a boy and becoming becoming a woman, um, uh, and so forth. She she was really willing, and her whole work centers on this idea of playing with time and playing with memory and playing with thoughts. Again, we just go stream of consciousness. You throw it away, but it's right. easy to forget. Uh, that this was so innovative at the time. We're dealing with somebody who was really only writing at the beginning of the 20th century. We'll place her in time here shortly. I know that we have to, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, it's in keeping. Yeah. Uh, because we're dealing with someone whose life uh, spanned through World War One and World War Two in a really clear um, and direct way. And both of those conflicts obviously affected her tremendously. Uh, one little trick I'm going to do for the structure of this episode is that I'm going to be on her Wikipedia page and occasionally I'm just going to look up the word suicide <laughs> and we're going to go, we're going to move around in time to, okay. to sort of okay. collect all of that. All right. Okay. So, okay. Yep. Right. Good. So let's place her in time. Um, oh, I, I also want to uh, say, uh, and maybe this is too much uh, preface, but I, I do want to say the material on her is, um, uh, perversely dry. If you go onto YouTube uh, and and you look up Virginia Woolf, uh, there's some solid biography, but not as much as you might like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it very, very quickly drifts, drifts into the academic, which mm-hmm. surprised me because I tend to think of her as bit, a bit more of a... Um, an enfant terrible and a, mm-hmm. a rock and roll figure, like an, like an Oscar Wilde. But that's mm-hmm. not how she's presented. Uh, however, her Wikipedia is, she may be one of the most documented lives short of a president. Uh, you could, (laughs) it's, it's incredible. She, she has been studied and her life poured over and the great mystery of her own psyche, um, turned over like a Rubik's cube again and again and again. And we're just going to add to that, that noise, I think, but (laughs) hopefully we can do, we can do it in a fun and interesting way. So let's, let's place her in time. So, uh, Adeline Virginia Wolf or Adeline Virginia Wolf, uh, was born, and I'm sure her her uh, her maiden name was Stephen. Um, she was born in January of 1882, so right around the time of the American Civil War. And she would die of suicide uh, on the 28th of March, 1941. Hmm. So again, placing her in time, the end of the uh, 19th uh, century, moving into the beginning of the the sort of early phase of world. Well, really, we're well into World War II at that point, um, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, She was an English writer, considered one of the most important modernist uh, 20th century authors and a pioneer in the use of stream of consciousness. She, she, well, what do you know of her background, Brad, if you had to guess? I know very little. Um, if I had to guess, I would say she probably comes from uh, her family probably had help rather than being the help. 
would be a guess. Yes, yes. Uh, they had, if I'm not mistaken, seven maids, seven household okay. workers. Uh, it's sort of brushed over in the documentary that I was watching on this uh, and sort of said this was not unusual for a family of her uh, stature at the time because, of course, we're dealing with a period where uh, you have uh, what's it called under the stairs or um, uh, 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 Downton Abbey. It's that yeah. sort of time. We're coming out of that period where there are really no modern conveniences and uh, people of this, of this class simply had help. So yes, she and her, fa- <clears throat> her family had help. So yeah. I'm just going to say that uh, she was born into an affluent household in South Kensington, London. She was the seventh child in a blended family of eight. So when we say blended family, both her parents uh, came from previous marriages. Uh, they were both widow. Uh, they they were widow, a widow and a widower. Um, and uh, now, a yes. widower, a widower. When I was a kid, just for a moment of levity, when I was a kid, I thought a widower meant that you had killed your wife. <laughs> no, no, why. no. That I was uh, why I thought that. That's a burrows. Okay, okay. <laughs> a burrows is when you kill your wife, Brad. Uh, now, I don't want to jump too far ahead here. Let's let's pause and say that her father Leslie Stephen was quite a heavy fellow. Um, he was to become Sir Leslie Stephen. Uh, so a knight, he was an English author, critic, historian, biographer, mountaineer. They were all mountaineers at the time. When we finally get to our Crowley episode, we'll yeah. we'll dwell on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they came from a distinguished intellectual family. Family the the milieu that she was brought up in uh, is perhaps unsurprising. Uh, what is surprising, of course, is, is her accomplishments uh, as, as a woman in this context. And we're really going to pause and talk a lot about that. Um, but he, he edited, it's something like the, uh, the biographical history, uh, something or other. I, I can't recall what it is, but it's like he was a major figure to the point where he, where he was knighted. Hmm. Um, now, there was an incident in her. So she had a number of half-siblings. Um, and there was an incident in her childhood, um, which we have to consider not only when we consider sort of her darkness, right, but also her, mm-hmm. her psychology. So I'm going to read from, I've got a book, uh, Virginia Woolf in 90 minutes. Uh, I, I have a, I have a more, uh, heavy <laughs> book too, but I, I picked this one up. Um, I don't know if we'll go 90 minutes or not. Um, so Uh, It says here, despite growing up amidst such a numerous and close family, Virginia grew into a complex and hypersensitive child. This was at least partly a result of a number of traumatic formative experiences. When she was around seven, her 18-year-old half-brother, Gerald, lifted her onto a ledge where the dishes were placed outside the dining room, quoting uh, Virginia. And And this is from a memoir she wrote later in life. And as I sat there, he began to explore my body. I can remember the feel of his hand going under my clothes, going firmly and steadily lower and lower. I remember how I hoped that he would stop, how I stiffened and wriggled as his hand approached my private parts, but it did not stop. His hand explored my private parts too. I remember resenting, disliking it. What is the word for so dumb and mixed a feeling? It must have been strong since I still recall it. So this, this molestation, um, would inform her, her life and her sexuality a great deal. There's a, a lot of ink has been spilled over this. Uh, it's certainly a part of her, her character. 
And uh, obviously this informed her, her, uh, her life. Hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. go ahead. Do we know, so was that, was that an ongoing thing that this brother, I mean, do, is there any, we don't, I, you know, I, I, I haven't done that level of uh, reading on it. The impression I got is that it, it probably wasn't. Um, okay. But then again, I don't, it's one of those cases of we'll never know, I believe. You wouldn't know unless she said it. Right. right. How yeah. else would you know? And this is, right. this is unfortunately the case of so much of that kind of uh, yeah. abuse historically, right? People are yeah. ashamed to talk about it, ashamed to put it down. Uh, yeah. The fact that she wrote about it once seems to suggest it may have happened again. Yeah. Uh, one, of the, one of the scholars that I was uh, watching on YouTube said that she chooses not to think of Virginia Woolf as a victim, mm. uh, but yet there it is. Right. Um, so it's, right. it's, it's something that you have to sort of pause and consider. Um, uh, another major event during Virginia's um, childhood, which really um, abruptly ended her childhood was in 1897, her mother um, died. And Mm -hmm. she was only, I believe, uh, we can do the math here. 13 or 14? Well, she was born in uh, 91. So 97, not much, not much older than six or seven, I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, it, but it's these, those dates that I have might be wrong. It says here, from the age of 13, following the death of her mother, Wolf suffered periodic mood swings from severe depression to manic excitement, including mm. psychotic episodes, which the family referred to as her madness. Mm. Uh, however, as Hermione Lee points out, Wolf was not mad. She was merely a woman who suffered from and struggled with illness for much of her relatively short life. Um, so this is where we get again to the kind of crux of her character. Um, what are we, what are we dealing with? You know, is she, um, is she mad? Is she, is she a genius? Is she all of it? Right. right. And right. we can, this is a thing that we're going to deal with with a lot of our figures <laughs> where we want to apply modern or, or contemporary uh, analyses to a, a dead artist, right? Oh, yeah. she was bipolar. She was bipolar, etc. Right, right. Um, so, you know, but those yeah. things don't. To me, those things don't minimize those more than call into question the nature of that artist's work, or it more calls into question. Well, what is bipolar exactly? Right. Yeah, like right. We've, we've applied this term loosely to a set of checklisted symptoms, but like that, these don't really tell you a whole lot about what it is to be that thing mm-hmm. and how it interacts with intelligence and experience and, and other aspects of your temperament and that sort of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, she, she was mad, but right. That also doesn't, you know, doesn't take anything away necessarily. We're all, we're all mad here too. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, uh, so I, I really want to pause and, and understand. So her mother died in 1985. Um, yeah. Wait. Or I, 1995. Yeah. So she was 13. Excuse okay. me. Yeah, yeah. So she was born in 82. Mother died in 95. So she was 13. I just okay. think that's important to pause Absolutely. on and really imagine you're just, well, she's in, a mixed, mm-hmm. she's in a mixed family too. So her mother dies and she's now 
she's now with her siblings that were, were from her mother, but then she's also in this family with all these other kids who she's not related to. You know, mm-hmm. her father's not in the, her father has, has passed as well, even if it was, you know, mm-hmm. early before her memory. So that's tough. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You're like an, or, you're like an orphan almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, yeah. So it's, it, it's very, it's very tricky. Um, so let's, see here so i want to yeah her mother dies and then the the story that is told is that her father then uh really didn't have the capacity to handle the his own grief much mm-hmm. less the grief of his children mm-hmm. uh and so this this caused a a great deal of um of agony mm-hmm. uh and and problems yeah. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to look up the word suicide now okay. <laughs> in the, in the Wikipedia article, cause I just don't want to go, uh, from, from event to event to event to event. Sure. Um, ah, but before I do, I want to, I want to talk about, uh, something in the period because we're, we're touching on, we touched a little bit on the childhood abuse, uh, and her sexuality, I think was probably influenced by that. She, she did. She does have a reputation for being "quote unquote" a lesbian. I don't know if you've ever heard that, right? There's have, this. Yeah. yeah, she was. She was ultimately to get married. She never had children. Uh, the marriage at one juncture simply became platonic, right? Um, but I thought this an- anecdote about how um, uh, lesbianism was handled in the period was very interesting. Let me see if I can find it here really quickly. It was something. Yeah, go ahead. Oh yeah, there's it, this is two women would sort of live together, and everybody would just call them friends. So that sort of that was a little yeah, funny. right, right. I don't have the exact uh, quote in front of me, but the effect of it was because um, they were talking about uh, Oscar Wilde and how that scandal ten years prior um, had rocked everyone, and yeah. homosexuality was illegal, but lesbianism was not illegal. <laughs> Because Queen Victoria could, they would not even broach the subject to Queen Victoria. It was too sensitive. Tender sensibilities. Yes. They didn't even want to have to explain the mechanics of it to her. (laughs) (laughs) So so in theory, you could be off having uh, having as much fun as you'd like. That's Uh, funny. Yeah. So very interesting. Well, so... The, the death of her mother was, was really the, the cause of her first um, uh, breakdown. And um, it was, uh, that was something that was to be a, f- a feature her entire life. And she, her madness was of the sort where she would claim she could hear birds chirping in Greek. Mm. Right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. We're going we're gonna to jump forward. Oh, I have to pause and say... One major feature of her childhood um, and one of the things that makes her extraordinary uh, was her resentment at her being shut out of a formal education. She was bitter about this. Uh, 
finally she did get her, she essentially, well, she didn't educate herself. She more or less educated herself. She had the ability to do it. She had the books, uh, mm. she had the support, but she was not allowed into Oxford or, or to Cambridge, mm. uh, which where she would have, of course, excelled. Uh, mm. But she clearly, based on the work she put out, she gave herself an education. She wasn't completely, um, uh, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. lost, needless to say. Um, but she was so bitter about that, the iniquity yeah, of that. Mm-hmm. That sounds fair. I would, right. You know, I would be too. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, <laughs> so let's talk about uh, the, the death of her father. So again, she's born in, what did we say? It was, she was born in 82. And so she loses her father in 1904. Um, okay. So she's a young woman when that happens as well. Right. Right. Yeah. 22 or something like that. Yeah. And right. Exactly. 22. And that provoked her most alarming collapse. So we have to place ourselves here. 1904. uh, Obviously the the great war hasn't begun yet. Uh, We're in, we're in London uh, and her, you know, her father passes away uh, away and this leads to a collapse Actually, I think at this point they may have been in Cambridge. Um, they 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 were around England. This was the kind of family that had the city house and had the country house, et cetera. Um, so on May 10th of 1904, she threw herself out of a window in an attempt to commit suicide. Mm. Uh, and she was briefly institutionalized under the care of her father's friend, a psychiatrist, George Savage. Uh, and he blamed her education, frowned on by many at the time as unsuitable for women for her illness. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> literally, like, the, the idea was like her frail female brain couldn't handle an, an education. That's exactly it. Per- oh yeah. my gosh. A degree of misogyny. Wow. George Savage, you're canceled, buddy. <laughs> yeah, for real. You're not going to make it. Uh, well, but this is not, a, that would not have been uncommon at the time. Right. I really have to pause and, and uh, iterate here as we're going along. I, I, she was, she came from, this family was a family more or less of atheists. Mm. Uh, and she would have these, uh, consummated it or not, these kind of lesbian affairs. Mm-hmm. We're dealing with somebody who's right on the cutting edge of everything. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Finally, we become interested in, uh, I think it's the post-impressionists, so cubism, and would use the cubist idea of multiple angles in her writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the novel Jacob's Room, we never actually meet the, or we never, we don't get the impression of Jacob from Jacob. We get the impression of Jacob from the people around him. Mm-hmm. This idea of uh, reality refracted through multiple perspectives is really mm-hmm. essential to her work and to her writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're in 1904, again, jumping around, stream of consciousness. Uh, she has just tried to kill herself. And she, at that point, begins to spend time recovering at the house of a friend, Violet Dickinson, uh, in Cambridge. Uh, by January 1905, Dr. Savage, which I like for a doctor's name, Dr. Yeah. Savage, considered her cured. Violet was 17 years older than Virginia and became one of her closest friends and nurses. And this would become characterized as a romantic friendship. So this is interesting. Uh, Finally, Virginia's brother, Toby, uh, 
would die in 1906. And she called that a decade of deaths that ended her childhood and adolescence. Yeah. Oof. And she said from then on, her life was punctuated by urgent voices from the grave and at times seemed more real than her visual reality. Hmm. So this is a woman who is haunted, haunted uh, uh, yeah, by the ghosts of yeah. her, of her, uh, of her, her dead relatives and her family. So this yeah. is someone who's not, um, yeah, not unaware. Um, we're getting toward the year 1910 and I want to pause and talk about an event that happened um, which is quite humorous. But before I do, I want to pull up, as we did with the Oscar Wilde episode, I think there's something to be said about uh, great quotes from a writer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so this is perhaps one of the most famous. Uh, a woman must have money and a room of her own if she is to write fiction. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Classic. Yeah. You need this. And oh, this, yeah. this is anyone, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Right. But at the time, I think she had said women had really only been allowed to have their own money for 40 years. Yes. Right. Yeah. So it's seen it. it yes. Yeah. Unreal. I'm going to read a few more. These tend to focus on the feminism, but I think it's uh, important that we don't box her into too much of a corner about that. Her, her writing, if you've never read Virginia Woolf, is incredible. It is oh, yeah. some of the most, at one point in one of the novels, she compares... Uh, she describes a dawn over the ocean and she compares the ocean to a clock somehow in this mm -hmm. wonderful way. It's mm -hmm. just evocative and it, yeah. Yeah. And we you. should, mm -hmm. we should say that the, despite the fact that um, she is sort of celebrated in the history of feminism, that um, a person shouldn't let that put them off if they're wanting to read a novel that isn't, doesn't deal, you know what I'm saying? Like, don't expect you're going to read a Virginia Woolf novel and it's going to be like uh, on the face of it, like a feminist tract. Right. If you, yeah, they're, they're, mm -hmm. they're brilliant novels, whatever yes. the politics or of the writer or whatever. I mean, you don't, yeah. If you're I interested just to in, put that point, like these are not feminist political documents or something though. She's important in that school too. She's uh, they're brilliant novels in and of themselves. Right. Without a doubt. If you want to read the feminism, read A Room of Her mm -hmm. Own. That's mm -hmm. the book where she... Which is also brilliant. Yeah, incredible. She goes yeah. into the British Library and at one point she talks about how curious it is uh, that woman is probably the most discussed, most described, most written about creature mm -hmm. in the world. And yet so few women have written about women. Mm -hmm. What an interesting idea, right? <laughs> <laughs> All the men are motivated, right? We, right. we sail the ocean, we go yeah. to war, we yeah. suffer and die uh, over this thing. And, and yet the thing itself is not expressing itself. Yeah. Brilliant insight. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll give a couple of more. I quite like this. Arrange whatever pieces come your way. Mm-hmm. Mm this is another one I'll read right now. The eyes of others are prisons. Their thoughts are cages. Quite like that. Huh. Yeah, the idea that uh, we're trapped in this society that expects a million different things from us and we live mm -hmm. inside our thinking about those expectations and mm -hmm. confuse it all. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Well, so again, we're dealing with this elite family in, uh, in England. At this point, 
Virginia has, I think it was 9,000 pounds she inherited and a 400 pound, uh, essentially trust fund. So that she is a trust fund brat. Nice. Let's, yeah. let's just say that. Sure. Uh, of sure. course, she suffered mightily and right. uh, no doubt she would have traded to have her parents back. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but we're not dealing with someone who uh, necessarily has to work. Mm-hmm. Um, although at, for a period, she would work at a place called Morley College, which was a, I think for three years, she, she worked there even though she didn't need to, and she taught kind of adult continuing education type oh, classes. Okay. Okay. So that's quite a nice thing yeah. when you yeah. think about Virginia. She was very sensitive to the working class. Mm-hmm. There's, some, there's some excellent writing she, she has um, on how her, and this is in a room of her own, uh, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but the gist of it is uh, how her attitude toward men grew much less embittered when her, she, she got her trust fund <laughs> because it just took all the edge off of everything. She, yeah. Well, mm-hmm, you don't mm-hmm. feel like you're, you're, you don't feel like you're missing out on something. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though obviously there are other women who are missing out on it, but mm-hmm. is 400, I don't expect you to know exactly, but this 400 pounds a year is that, Yes, I, I happen to know. So, oh, is that, uh, yeah, I'm curious, mm-hmm. is that like a middle class? What is that? Yeah, I'll explain it. So uh, her, her husband, um, Leonard Wolf, the man she was to marry, uh, but then ultimately have a, a kind of a platonic, uh, you know, a Lucy, <laughs> the, the twin beds, right, mm-hmm. uh, across the room mm-hmm. relationship with, was a, was a civil servant. And I think in, I think in Calcutta, uh, I'll look it up, but he was a civil servant and his salary to give you a perspective was something like 240. He was a a successful. um, Okay. Yeah. His, uh, his salary was 240 pounds a year. So she, I would guess, I mean, you know, let's say, uh, you know, uh, the equivalent of, um, a couple hundred thousand bucks. Yeah. A couple hundred thousand bucks a year. So you, you, you never have to work again. You're, you're, you're completely, uh, at Liberty. And she even, when, when she met him, she wrote to people that she was going to marry a penniless Jew. She did. Uh, and um, yeah, yeah, no, it's quite funny. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, no, because she, of course, he wasn't penniless, but right. uh, to her, he was. yeah, he was definitely marrying up in, in this case. And yeah. Uh, yeah, what a, what a funny thing. You can, you can work and work and work. Uh, and, and this trust fund kid with who hears voices from the grave will make twice as much money as you do just because she was born into the right, into the right family. It's the birth lottery. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. yeah. What are you going to do though about Virginia Woolf and and that she made the most of it? She didn't just. Well, that's the mm-hmm. thing. You got I mean, it's not her fault. She got the money. I would have mm-hmm. taken it too. And you know, what did she do with it? She basically changed the face of English literature. So right. So that was daddy. money well spent on the yeah. uh, on the trust yeah. fund. I want to get to this interesting event, mm-hmm. but I, I do have to pause. Uh, because there is a section uh, in the Wikipedia about anti-Semitism, and it's tricky with her. Uh, mm-hmm. She was happily married to a Jewish man, uh, but often wrote about Jewish characters with stereotypes and generalizations. It's tricky. Um, mm-hmm. 
she could criticize her own views. She, she said how I hated marrying a Jew, how I hated their nasal voices and their oriental jewelry and their noses and their, wa- and their waddles. What a snob I was, for they have immense vitality. And I think I like that quality best of all. So this ambivalent huh. kind of tricky attitude uh, sure. to, to her Jewish uh, husband. Um, it's saying here that these attitudes are not anti-Semitic per se, they're more tribalism. She married out of her social group. Uh, right. And it's, right. it's Leonard Wolf um, was her husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I hope we're doing this stream of consciousness thing really well yeah. here because we're all over the place. But <laughs> we that's are fine. All over yeah. All right. No, we're picking good. up the pieces. That's the idea. Yeah. Exactly. Assemble the pieces that come to you or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he had his own misgivings. Uh, about saying, marrying her? Yeah. About marrying yeah. a Gentile. Uh, uh, yeah, sure. and this is something that you'll still see today. It's yeah. this is not uh, unusual. So I don't think that we have some anti-Semitic villain here. Yeah. Uh, but there you go. So in 1910, uh, what what age would that put her at? 24, I believe. Uh, 26. Uh, 28. Uh, yeah, 28. Yeah, you're doing better keeping her age in your head than I am. <laughs> uh, so she's she's 28 years old, and she's in this milieu. Uh, She's she's been at um, was it Cambridge or Oxford? She's been at one of the one of the uh, the schools, and kind of in these in this super elite yeah Cambridge, this super elite intellectual circle. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's been around it with her brothers. She can hang with the boys. Mm-hmm. Um, the, if I was to begin to list the names uh, that her life came in touch with. It, it would just take up the rest of the episode. It was almost <laughs> like anybody who was anybody at the time, uh, their name comes up. It's Bertrand Russell. It's uh, Keen, the, the, um, the economist and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there's going to be more to come as we'll play all the hits here as we go. Yeah. Um, but this, this incident happened in 1910. And I just want you to, uh, <laughs> it's such an interesting, funny thing that happened. Um, the, so, okay, <laughs> the, her, she and a bunch of her friends uh, pretended to be the, the, like the king of Abyssinia. And, and they, like the entourage? Yes, and the yeah. entourage. Yeah, okay. And they, so this became like a huge, huge prank. Uh, it was front page news. And you can, you can go, if you want to look up something funny, look up the Dreadnought Hoax Virginia uh, Wolf, and there are pictures of her, unfortunately, in blackface. Ooh. <laughs> right, but this is before you know. Of course, this is this is. But they fooled, I think, the the Navy, um, and there she is, dressed up in a turban, uh, blackface, in Abyssinian costume, and it became front page news. This is the group of people that you're dealing with. You are dealing with these not. Not she wasn't a bad boy on the level of uh, Oscar Wilde. Yeah, yeah. But they they like a good prank. Yeah. Oh, right? a lot. It seems like a lot went into this. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. The costuming but, is. I mean. Yeah. Are you looking at yeah. it now? Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. costuming that looks. I mean, if you yeah. told me this was the the entourage of an Abyssinian king, Abyssinian king, I would I wouldn't see any reason to doubt it. Yeah, so I like to think Virginia and her and her pals had a lot of fun. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read about this. 
Uh, and we're, again, slipping through time here. In a talk given in 1940, Wolf described how in 1910, young naval officers enjoyed playing practical jokes on one another. Quoting, the officers of the Hawk and the Dreadnought had a feud, and Cole's friend, who was on the Hawk, had come to Cole and said to him, you're a great hand at hoaxing people. Couldn't you do something to pull the leg of the Dreadnought? So you have these rival naval, you know, uh, they want taking down a bit. Couldn't you manage to play off one of your jokes against them? This involved Cole and five friends, writer Virginia Stephen, her brother Adrian Stephen, Guy Ridley, Anthony Buxton, and Duncan Grant, who had, them, had themselves disguised by the theatrical uh, customer, uh, Willie Clarkson, with skin darkeners and turbans to resemble members of the Abyssinian royal family. <laughs> the main limitation of the disguises was that the quote-unquote royals could not eat anything or their makeup would be ruined. Uh, Adrian Stephen took up the role of the interpreter. So on the, Feb uh, the 7th of February, 1910, uh, they visited Wolf's home and applied the stage makeup, then provided Eastern robes. Uh, they were also wearing 500 pounds of jewelry. <laughs> Not pounds, but pounds. Oh, yes. Yeah. So then a friend of Stephen sent a telegram to the, the other ship, to the home fleet, stating that Prince Makalan of Abyssinian, <laughs> Abyssinia and Sweet, arrived 420 today, Weymouth. Uh, he wishes to see Dreadnought. Kindly arrange, meet them on arrival. <laughs> 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 right so the navy welcomed the princes with an honor honor guard uh an abyssinian flag whoop, whoop uh, a flag whoop, hang tight there a flag was not found so the navy proceeded to use that of zanzibar and to play zanzibar's national <laughs> so, anthem so they just played some other countries <laughs> <laughs> i didn't even know what it would go like right <laughs> The group inspected the fleet. To show their appreciation, they communicated in a gibberish of words drawn from Latin and Greek. They asked for prayer mats and attempted to bestow fake military honors on some of the officers. Commander Fisher failed to recognize either of his cousins. Wow. Right. <laughs> so it was uncovered in London and the ringleader contacted the press and sent photos of the princes. So this is like a, a laddish prank. And uh, yeah, that went off. That's yeah. Like a blast. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not all uh, doom and gloom for Virginia Woolf. These are people who, who, you know, they know how to have a little bit of fun. Yeah. Um, Brad, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta, <laughs> so that's, that feels like a good moment to read a few more quotes from, for, from yeah. Virginia. Uh, let me find a few here that I think are good. Uh, so, so many wonderful quotes and ideas. Uh, let's see. I like this. You cannot find peace by avoiding life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is good. If you, do not, uh, if you do not tell the truth about yourself, you cannot tell it about other people. Mm -hmm. And then one third one here. As a woman, I have no country. As a woman, my country is the whole world. Hmm. Including Abyssinia. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you probably heard of the Bloomsbury Group. Yeah, 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 a little bit. What do you know about that? Uh, that was James Joyce's. James Joyce was involved in that, was he not? Uh, Might have been. I mean, I know it was a, it was a, it was a sort of social club slash discussion group of uh, writers and others who were prominent in what would later be called the modernist movement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Bloomsbury is a neighborhood in London. It's actually, I mean, it's, it's, it's an incredible area. At the time, it wasn't considered to be a swell address. I think it's a little too far east, okay. uh, but it's a, um, a pretty, it's a great place. I mean, it's very near the British Museum. Uh, if you're right. ever in London, you want to walk around it. So we could do an entire episode uh, on, on the Bloomsbury group, but this was a big deal. They, they had a Friday club that was begun in 1905. Uh, this was, uh, they had a Thursday evening um, session. Hmm. And for them, it was sort of Cambridge in London, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, they brought the intellectual energy and excitement. Uh, they were an intellectual aristocracy. Uh, hmm. So, I mean, I can, I can read from this here. The Bloomsbury group, mostly from upper middle class professional families, formed a, an intellectual aristocracy that could trace it back to the Clapham, the Clapham sect. So this is this is a place and time where, you know, you want to get these people are so excited and energized about ideas and what's happening and, and mm-hmm. what's going on in the world. And they gather and they talk. And this is another list of names that if I could just if I could read them off, you know, it's. Um, E.M. Forster, mm-hmm. Duncan Grant, John Maynard Keene, the the economist, uh, Lytton Strachey. She had a, a kind of a relationship with him, and then the Wolfs as well. Yeah, huh. yeah, yep. So I, this is a this is a woman who is really, despite not having the the finest formal education, was um, really involved in in a high high grade intellectual circle. Hmm. Uh, so I think we need to get to her, get to her marriage. So we're, we're past the dreadnought hoax. Her marriage is just before the war. Uh, they, they met in 1904. He was in the civil service in Ceylon, uh, which I think now we would call Sri Lanka. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and again, as I mentioned, he was successful at that, but he still didn't have as much money uh, as, as Virginia. Uh, he returned to London uh, in 1911. The idea was for that to be a, a year of leave, but he never went back. He renewed his contacts. He got involved at the, with the Bloomsbury business, uh, and this would ultimately lead to their, their marriage. Um, and together, they formed uh, the Hogarth Press. Are you familiar with this? That name rings a bell, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they they got their own printing press and they went about publishing. Uh, their first publication was after the war. Uh, so during the war, let me see. I'm going to just look up randomly, look up the word suicide again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's actually really important because uh, uh, let me just read this. So on the 4th of December of 1911, um, they moved he moved into a menage on, I don't even know what that is, on Brunswick Square, uh, probably just a studio or whatnot, occupying a bedroom and sitting room on the fourth floor. He started seeing Virginia. He fell in love. 1912, he proposed. Uh, She wanted some time. He got extension for his leave. He resigned uh, for her, right? So a bit of a gambit. Mm -hmm. Uh, I hope I can marry this uh, lovely, eccentric woman. Mm -hmm. He pursued her. Um, she was hesitant. And then finally, uh, they, they were married on the 10th of August in, uh, what year here, 1912. 
Now, this is kind of funny. It's a little bit of a break it, you buy it situation here. Mm -hmm. So it was only after they were married that he became aware of her mental state. Mm. Uh, So this is one of those things where if you're a super trad person, you might go, yeah, you shouldn't cohabitate before marriage. That's not good. But <laughs> yeah. mm, Man. Yeah, maybe, maybe there's a case to, to go, oh, oh my, uh, my uh, new wife, here's yeah. uh, the bird singing in Greek. Right, right, right. I did not know that. Yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, they, they lived at Brunswick Square in London um, until October 1912. And then they moved to a small flat further east. Uh, and despite his low material status, so he didn't have money. Of course, mm-hmm. he's resigned too now. Mm-hmm. Um, they did have a bond. Uh, so, you know, they, they, did, they did fall in love. Nevertheless, in 1913, she made a suicide attempt. Mm. So, right, this is number yeah. two. And I think, I think this one was pills, if I'm mm. not mistaken. So now she's married. We're in the thick of the Great War. Uh, she's, she's kind of moving into middle age here. And she's again tried to kill herself. Mm-hmm. So this is where Leonard discovers her husband, uh, the, the so-called penniless Jew, discovers that he can keep Virginia well if he keeps her calm, mm-hmm. Right keeps her fed and keeps her rested. So Mm. she needs to be, she's very, very sensitive, which is Mm. probably not surprising. Uh, At the time she's working on her first um, novel. Uh, She's working on, let me find it here on the voyage out. Um, And I want to get to that because I want to get to her work because we could dwell on the, the suicide and all the rest. So the, the voyage out, this is another point that, that's made in the documentaries. They talk about how her, her mental problems uh, became accented in between periods of her book being finished and her books being released. She's a classic case of somebody who kind of needs to be working on a project, needs to be writing. <laughs> this is not optional for Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, so have you ever read the, the Voyage Out? I haven't read The Voyage Out, no. Yeah. So Not familiar it was, with the premise or anything. Right. Yeah. So uh, it was published in 1915. Uh, and I'm going to read the beginning. I'm just going to read the beginning of The Voyage Out. I'm going to read the beginning of her first novel. Uh, and I'm just going to, as I'm just going to, just because I feel like we need to hear her voice. Mm-hmm. And then we will hear her voice. I actually am going to queue up a recording of her actual oh, cool. voice. And it oh, will cool. sur- I think it will surprise you. All right. um, As the streets that lead from the Strand to the, to the Embankment, th- these are neighborhoods in London, the Strand and the Embankment, are very narrow. It is better not to walk down arm in arm. If you persist, lawyers' clerks will have to make flying leaps into the mud. Young lady typists will have to fidget behind you. In the streets of London where beauty goes unregarded, eccentricity must pay the penalty and it is better not to be very tall to wear a long blue cloak or to beat the air with your left hand. <laughs> that's, that's uh, boom. Yeah, that's good. That, We're that, just drop you right into London. Yeah, don't, and you, don't step out of line. Right, 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 right. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. 
And yes. she painted a whole she painted a whole little world there in a few sentences. Just a just a real neat mm. paragraph. I'm going to mm-hmm. pick another uh, paragraph at random just for the joy of it. Um, I don't want to do something that's in conversation. Well, let's let's see here. This is a conversation. Well, let me find one that's not. All right. So this is the beginning of chapter twenty. When considered in detail by Mr. Flushing and Mrs. Ambrose, the expedition proved neither dangerous nor difficult. They found also that it was not even unusual. Every year at this season, English people made parties which uh, steamed a short way up the river, landed, and looked at the native village, bought a certain number of things from the natives, and returned again without damage done to mind or body. When it was discovered that six people really wished the same thing, the arrangements were soon carried out. There's a, yeah. Yeah. So what I'm seeing, I, we're not seeing her, the, the famed stream of consciousness at play. Right. Uh, I think, I think this is her early novel. This is her yeah, first novel. Right. Uh, you know, and so we're, we're not, she hasn't quite really come to her, mm-hmm. the fullness of her, of her voice. Sure. Uh, but that, that would come in, in later, in later years. Okay. Um, yeah. So they, they found the Hogarth Press and they published, they start publishing their own work. They, they were the first people to publish uh, T.S. Eliot. No oh, wow. slouch. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They would, they would publish uh, Freud in oh, the wow. translation. Uh, they were not uh, slouches. Right. They were, they right. were really, again, uh, and they, they weren't sitting on their laurels or just counting her trust fund. They actually yeah. went and did stuff with it. Man. So kind of wonderful. Uh, so yeah, this is funny. Uh, I'm looking at a page here and it says world war one, great Britain enters world war one. Most members of the Bloomsbury group are pacifists and none of the men enlist. (laughs) There were, and there were an awful lot of, um, frankly, homosexuals in her milieu. Uh, there, they were playing with sexuality. They were playing with identity. They didn't want to be bound. This is what we mean by modernism. They didn't want to be bound by these old styles, these old rules. Let's Mm -hmm. break all the rules. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So they were the first people to publish uh, uh, Catherine Mansfield as well uh, as, yeah, as T.S. Eliot. Um, So, right. We need to pause here. It's, it's after the war. She has, she publishes um, a novel called Jacob's Room, which is based on her brother Toby's death. Mm. Uh, have you read Jacob's Room? I haven't read Jacob's Room, no. Yeah, I was, uh, I was listening to a bit of it uh, on, on audiobook. This is one, one thing I should say. There's an awful lot of um, solid audiobook versions of her work that you can, um, you can find on YouTube okay. Okay. that are not, they're not terrible. You can really listen to them and they're, they're out there. They're open source. Uh, if you're like I am and maybe you're working all day on something, you, you can put this on the, the background, but here's where we're really getting into. Um, we skipped over a novel night and day, but that's fine. Um, this is the real departure for her. So uh, it's the third novel published in October of 22 and it, focuses in a really ambiguous, ambiguous way around the life of the protagonist who is presented almost entirely through the impressions other characters have of him. Mm-hmm. And that to me, that to me is fascinating. Right. There's this idea of at the center of this novel, there's this idea of an absence or an emptiness. And of course this novel is being written in the context of the war. 
And so you have this idea that's hinted at is that Jacob may, at the end may, may go off to the war and die. So the summary of the novel is, you know, it's set in pre-war England. It begins in his childhood, follows him through college at Cambridge. So she's drawing on her brother's life, uh, mainly told through the, through the perspective of the, uh, of the women in his life. So, and there's clearly her own kind of uh, simulacrum in it, right? Clara Durant, an upper middle class uh, uh, repressed woman, <laughs> you know, right? And then, so this is somewhat not autobiographical, but somewhat biographical, although she's mm-hmm. in there. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's set in London. So this is really where she breaks out and, okay. and begins to evolve kind of a, a progressivism mm-hmm. uh, in her writing. So, Brad, do you have any questions? How am I doing? <laughs> We're doing good, man. I'm yeah. inter- I was very interested to hear about this depart, this stylistic departure in Jacob's room because, mm-hmm. yeah, I want to know where that, where that's the stream of consciousness stuff. I think it's become a commonplace thing to say about a writing style. Um, and, and often if it gets applied now or someone claims they're doing it now, I'm generally highly skeptical because what it can mean when applied contemporary, contemporarily right now is, yeah, it's just like a kind of a loose, unstructured sort of like impressionistic sort of thing. Or it's just somebody talking, saying whatever comes to mind. And that's not really what the Virginia Woolf school of stream of consciousness is. It, it could feel like that sometimes to the untrained eye, I, I suppose. But she was really trying to capture the phenomena of being a conscious mind. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, and of right. course, you're, you're the novelist here. So yeah. you're right. I'm glad that you kind, of, you kind of paused to say that. And I think when we get to To, to the Lighthouse, I think I'll try to... Um, read an excerpt of it yeah that would be good there's some key yeah. i know for sure there's some 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 great examples in there mm-hmm. yeah. absolutely um let's let's talk about vita sackville west uh and so we're in the bloomsbury group uh and the ethos of that group was a liberal approach to sexuality so in December of 22, so it's after the war, she's a semi-famous writer now. She's running a publishing house with her husband. Uh, she met the gardener and writer, Vita Sackville West, uh, who was the wife of a man named Harold Nicholson. They met while dining out or while dining with a friend. Uh, and then she, in her diary, described her as meeting the lovely, gifted, aristocratic Sackville West. And at the time, Sackville West was the more successful writer. So it's like our relationship, Brad, where I'm wildly <laughs> successful. And, <laughs> and I will be eventually. <laughs> right. And then eventually I'll be forgotten. <laughs> I'll be remembered as your, as your podcasting buddy. Right. Um, not to make it weird. Uh, so, right. But it, it is funny, right? And it was not until after Wolf's death that she became considered the better writer. So this okay. is so funny, right? That's we live in this. This is so important to remember, right? The who's hot today may be forgotten tomorrow. And the person who is considered a, not a mediocrity, but who's yeah. maybe not as adored in life uh, becomes the, the great uh, success after. Mm-hmm. They did uh, begin a, a sexual relationship. And, uh, but it was only twice consummated. Hmm. So this was peaking at around 25, 28, and then it became more of a friendship. Uh, 
and apparently Wolf bragged about affairs with other women in her circle. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, they they definitely had this going on, and her her husband uh, Leonard was aware of it. And oh, really? Shrugged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so Sackville West was working to lift Wolf's self esteem. This was good for both of them. Um, it's hmm. saying here. This is when uh, Wolf was to write three of her great novels was during uh, this relationship. Yes. Was during yeah. this relationship. Hmm. I feel like in time we may have missed Mrs. Dalloway. Let me see. Uh, no, we're, we're, we're kind of right around that time. Uh, yeah. Well, Mrs. Dalloway is the big, um, massive, uh, breakout work. Mm -hmm. What do you know about Mrs. Dalloway? Bro? And, you know, not a whole lot more than what we've said. It's this sort of uh, exemplar stream of consciousness novel set in a single day. I think it does deal, mm -hmm. Mrs. Dalloway, I know it deals with some of these class, class gender issues, but I can't, I couldn't yeah. put my finger on the thesis exactly right now. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's about a woman named Clarissa Dalloway and the title itself is suggestive, right? Because mm -hmm. she is subsumed in her marriage, mm -hmm. Mrs. Dalloway. And, but mm -hmm. we're going to put the focus on her right now. Mm -hmm. And she's going around London, getting ready for a party that mm -hmm. evening. Mm -hmm. And she's uh, here. Wolf is explicitly riffing on Ulysses, the idea of a day in the life in London. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it also figures in a character named Septimus Smith, who is a first world war vet veteran with uh, what we would call PTSD now. I do remember that now. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. Yep. And he has hallucinations, uh, et cetera. This is um, based on, it's actually pulled from two short stories, uh, hmm. Mrs. Dalloway and Bond Street, and then an unfinished uh, short story called The Prime Minister, but it's packaged as a, as a novel, which I find interesting. Yeah. The, the structure of the novel, at least in the British edition, follows the chiming of the bells in London. Hmm. So there are 12 sections or 12 chapters. And if you've ever lived in London or spent time in London, the bells, the church bells are, are uh, still a feature of, of life in, in London. Hmm. Uh, so that for her was a huge breakout success. This was, uh, it was so it was successful, like upon publication more or less. I believe so. Yes. Yeah, I think it was yeah. Mrs. Dalloway where at that point money was not a problem. Hmm. Uh, and, they were spending, they had time, spent time uh, in the country where they, they lived in a couple of different houses in the country, but then finally they did, they did come back to London. Um, and, uh, and she was very happy about that. It's, it's that kind of thing where it's like, if you, you know, you're living in New York city in a, in a studio and then you have to go move to somewhere upstate, but then finally you're able to afford your place upstate and, uh, and in the city, they, mm -hmm. they were finally able to do it. Mm -hmm. So they did have some measure of success in their own lifetime. And of course they're publishing their own stuff. So mm -hmm. she's not giving a publisher 80% or whatnot. Good point. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, they're doing all right. They are doing okay. So um, uh, yeah, let's get into the work here now again. So I'm gonna read a section of uh, her follow-up to Mrs. Dalloway. It may have been to the lighthouse that was the, the um, incredible sort of financial success. Um, but in any case, let's see her. Yeah, here it is. Um, yes, this is good. 
This is funny. Yeah, this is it. So it was to the lighthouse that was the killer. So uh, upon completing the draft of this, her most autobiographical work or novel, Wolf described it as easily the best of my books. And her husband, Leonard, thought it a masterpiece, entirely new, a psychological poem. They published it together at their, I mean, squad goals here, relationship yes. goals here. Yeah. I mean, let's run a publishing house right, and right. You know, put out, crank out uh, bestsellers. So yeah. they published it together in, in 1927. Uh, the first impression of 3,000 copies of 320 pages measuring seven and a half by five inches was bound in blue cloth. And I bet those are uh, pricey. Oh, yeah. If you got your hands if, on one of those bad mm-hmm, boys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. The book uh, outsold all Wolf's previous novels and the proceeds enabled the Wolf's to buy a car. Nice. Right. Yeah. yeah Lambo. <laughs> this, is, this is her uh, crypto. That's right. Yeah. To the, to the lighthouse. To the moon, baby. <laughs> yeah. But I honestly, I, I do love to see this because I think as mm-hmm. we go, and I think more and more, maybe you'll handle the novelist, Brad. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm doing my best here, but it's... Uh, it is interesting. It's fun to see someone who had this kind of success in her own lifetime. That, Absolutely. That, yeah. And for doing something so innovative, mm-hmm. right? It's not, yeah. Yeah. That's great. And publishing it yourself, basically, which I, obviously they were, they were respected publishers to some, to some point, you know, with other, with other artists, but yeah, yeah. yeah. This wasn't, this wasn't vanity publishing either. Right. This was the real deal. And right. uh, again, I think it's interesting that they published their own work next to Freud's. Uh, it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. That, it, that to me furthers that idea that I have that really we're dealing with people who are interrogating the human psyche and uh, breaking ground in terms of new literature. So let's read, I'm going to read, uh, just a few paras of uh, To the Lighthouse. Awesome. Well, we must wait for the future to show, said Miss, uh, Mr. Banks, coming in from the terrace. It's almost too dark to see, said Andrew, coming up from the beach. One can hardly tell which is the sea and which is the land, said Prue. Do we leave that light burning, said Lily as they took their coats off indoors. No, said Prue, not if everyone's in. Andrew, she called back, just put out the light in the hall. One by one, the lamps were all extinguished, except that Mr. Carmichael, who liked to lie awake a little reading Virgil, kept his candle burning rather longer than the rest. So with the lamps all put out, the moon sunk, and a thin rain drumming on, a, uh, on the roof, a downpouring of immense darkness began. Nothing, it seemed, could survive the flood, the profusion of darkness, which, creeping in at keyholes and crevices, stole round window blinds, came into bedrooms, swallowed up here a jug and basin, there a bowl of red and yellow dahlias, there the sharp edges and firm bulk of a chest of drawers. Not only was furniture confounded, there was scarcely anything left of body or mind, by which one could say, this is he, or this is she. Sometimes a hand was raised as if to clutch something or ward off something, or somebody groaned, or somebody laughed aloud as if sharing a joke with nothingness. Nothing stirred in the drawing room or in the dining room or on the staircase. Only through the rusty hinges and swollen sea-moistened woodwork, certain airs detached, detached from the body of the wind, the house was ramshackle after all crept round corners and ventured indoors. Almost one might imagine them as they entered the drawing room, questioning and wondering, toying with the flap of hanging wallpaper, asking, would it hang much longer? When would it fall? 
Then smoothly brushing the walls, they passed on musingly as if asking the red and yellow roses on the wallpaper whether they would fade and questioning gently, for there was time at their disposal, the torn letters in the waste paper basket, the flowers, the books, all of which were now open to them and asking, were they allies? Were they enemies? How long would they endure? (laughs) I mean, so, right. Yeah. And then there's another paragraph. And then this section ends with, you know, here, Mr. Carmichael, who is reading Virgil, Mm -hmm. blew out his candle. It was past midnight. Mm. (laughs) That's how it's done. Yeah. There's no, there's never been uh, finer writing in English. Yeah. That's yeah. That's, that was fantastic. Yeah. You're, you're this preternatural consciousness mm-hmm. wandering through this house. It's, it's, it's rich with the kind of the good kind of symbolism, the kind of thing where it's not a settled kind of this means that sort of thing. We're sort of wandering around in the mystery, and uh, and the style is the style is great as well. Yeah, so yeah, that's that wonderful. It's a wonderful, wonderful passage. You really. If you don't read anything else, I would suggest reading To the Lighthouse yeah. or reading The Waves. If you're more interested in her direct voice and not reading a novel, A Room of Her Own uh, mm-hmm. would, be, would be the thing to read. Um, I actually want to check to see when she published that. Uh, I'm seeing A Room of One's Own and I'm seeing A Room of Her Own. So it may be published under different... Um, it's possible it's published... It says here A Room of, a room of One's Own. Really, really important. Uh, I, I just can't, I can't say enough of, about how great uh, this book is and how essential uh, and how biting and witty it is. Um, let, me, let me read a, a passage here. Um, let's see. Virginia sums up the stark contrast between how women are idealized uh, in fiction written by men and how patriarchal society has treated them in real life. So this is from A Room of One's Own. Women have, women have burnt like beacons in all the works of all the poets from the beginning of time. Indeed, if, women, uh, if woman had no existence save in the fiction written by men, one would imagine her a person of the utmost importance, very various, heroic and mean, splendid and sordid, beautiful and hideous in the extreme. As great as a man, some would say greater. But this is wom- woman in fiction. In fact, as Professor, uh, Professor Trevelyan points out, she was locked up beaten and flung about the room. A very queer composite being thus emerges. Imaginatively, she is of the highest importance. Practically, she is completely insignificant. She pervades poetry from cover to cover. She is all but absent from history. She dominates the lives of kings and conquerors in fiction. In fact, she was the slave of any boy whose parents forced a ring upon her finger. Some of the most inspired words and profound thoughts in literature fall from her lips. In real life, she could hardly read, scarcely spell, and was the property of her husband. Dang. Yeah. So this, wherever you you stand on this stuff right now, obviously we're dealing with what what wave of feminism now, Brad? I don't know. Sixth wave? Seventh wave? I don't know. There's this core truth of the... uh, the subjugation of women that is so Mm -hmm. historically profound and intense and a room of one's own is this incredibly essential missive uh, on that fact, which is undeniable. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you listen to it, you, you do find yourself nodding along and it's done with wit, but there is a rage boiling at the bottom of it. And uh, 
I think deservedly so. Absolutely. So yeah. now we're moving into the, the um, interwar period. So we're between World War I and World War II. She's having her, her lesbian affair, her affairs. She's um, a very successful writer uh, to the point where she's, she's famous. Uh, she, she writes a book called Orlando after to the lighthouse, which is based on Sackville West. And it follows a gender switching title character as he, she moves through history. <laughs> so something that could be probably published today where yeah, we're dealing pretty, with. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we're going to move forward. There are a number of deaths. Uh, her, her abuser dies. Some of her other um, brothers die. Um, we're getting into World War II. Uh, and I think this is where we're going to actually listen to her, to her voice before we wind down here, Brad. So oh, cool. yeah. this is quite, quite long. Uh, I, think, I think it's something like seven minutes. However... Yeah. Uh, I, this is amounts to mansplaining right now. And I think, <laughs> <laughs> yes, we need, we need Virginia to speak for herself a little bit. I think yeah. Without a doubt. And I think I'm going to play the whole thing. Uh, okay. this is, this is a recording that was uh, made by the BBC, uh, I believe in 1937. It's the one recording we have of her voice and in it, she is talking about, uh, structure and, uh, ideas of writing. Let me exactly get, get this up and ah, here's the word craftsmanship. So, okay. Let's oh, listen to yes. Virginia herself. Oh, I, I, before we do have, you've never heard her voice. Before? I've never heard her voice. No. Okay. What do you expect? She sounds like Brad. I would expect her to sound like uh Catherine Hepburn, Hepburn, but a little more English. <laughs> All right. Like mid, like mid Atlantic, but a little bit skewed to England. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I just I just put uh, put it in the chat so you okay. have a listen, and we'll come back after we've actually listened to the great Virginia Woolf. All right. Words, English words, are full of echoes, memories, associations. They've been out and about on people's lips, in their houses, in the streets, in the fields, for so many centuries, and that is one of the chief difficulties in writing in today. They're stored with other meanings, with other memories, and they have contracted so many famous marriages in the past. The splendid word incarnadine, for example, who can use that without remembering multitudinous seas? In the old days, of course, when English was a new language, writers could invent new words and use them. Nowadays, it's easy enough to invent new words. They spring to the lips whenever we see a new sight or feel a new sensation. But we cannot use them because the English language is old. You cannot use a brand new word in an old language because of the very obvious, yet always mysterious fact that a word is not a single and separate entity. It is part of other words. Indeed, it is not a word until it is part of a sentence. Words belong to each other. Although, of course, only a great poet knows that the word incarnadine belongs to multitudinous seas. To combine new words with old words is fatal to the constitution of the sentence. In order to use new words properly, you would have to invent a whole new language, and that, though no doubt, 
we shall come to it, is not at the moment our business. Our business is to see what we can do with the old English language as it is. How can we combine the old words in new orders so that they survive, so that they create beauty, so that they tell the truth? That is the question. And the person who could answer that question would deserve whatever crown of glory the world has to offer. Think what it would mean if you could teach or if you could learn the art of writing. Why every book, every newspaper you pick up would tell the truth or would create beauty. But there is, it would appear, some obstacle in the way, some hindrance to the teaching of words. For though at this moment at least a hundred professors are lecturing in the literature of the past, at least a thousand critics are reviewing the literature of the present, and hundreds and hundreds of young men and women are passing examinations in English literature with the utmost credit, still, do we write better? Do we read better than we read and wrote four hundred years ago when we were unlectured, uncriticized, untaught? Is our modern Georgian literature a patch on the Elizabethan? Well, where are we to lay the blame? Not on our professors, not on our reviewers, not on our writers, but on words. It is words that are to blame. They are the wildest, freest, most irresponsible, most unteachable of all things. Of course, you can catch them and sort them and place them in alphabetical order in dictionaries. But words do not live in dictionaries. They live in the mind. If you want proof of this, consider how often in moments of emotion when we most need words, we find none. Yet there is a dictionary. There at our disposal are some half million words, all in alphabetical order. But can we use them? No, because words do not live in dictionaries, they live in the mind. Look once more at the dictionary. There, beyond a doubt, lie plays more splendid than Anthony and Cleopatra, poems lovely on the oak to Nightingale, novels beside which Pride and Prejudice or David Copperfield are the crude bunglings of amateurs. Only a question of finding the right words and putting them in the right order. We can't do it because they do not live in dictionaries, they live in the mind. And how do they live in the mind? Variously and strangely, much as human beings live, ranging hither and thither, falling in love, meeting together. It is true they are much less bound by ceremony and convention than we are. Royal words meet with commoners. English words marry French words, German words, Indian words, Negro words, if they have a fancy. Indeed, the less we inquire into the past of our dear mother English, the better it will be for that lady's reputation, for she has gone a roving a roving fair maid. Thus to lay down any laws for such a reclaimable vagabond is worse than useless. A few trifling rules of grammar and spelling is all the constraint we can put on them. All we can say about them as we peer at them over the edge of that deep, dark, and only fitfully illuminated cavern in which they live, the mind, all we can say about them is that they seem to like people to think before they use them and to feel before they use them. But to think and to feel not about them, about something different. They are highly sensitive, easily made self-conscious, 
They do not like to have their purity or their impurity discussed. If you start a society for pure English, they will show their resentment by starting another for impure English, hence the unnatural violence of much modern speech. The protest against the Puritans. They are highly democratic, too. They believe that one word is as good as another. Uneducated words, as good as educated words. Uncultivated words, as good as cultivated words. There are no ranks or titles in their society. Nor do they like being lifted on the point of a pen and examined separately. They hang together in sentences, paragraphs, sometimes the whole pages at a time. Then they hate being useful. They hate making money. They hate being lectured about in public. In short, they hate anything that stamps them with one meaning or confines them to one attitude. For it is our nature to change. Perhaps that is our most striking peculiarity, their need of change. It is because the truth they try to catch is many-sided, and they convey it by being many-sided. Flashing first this way, then that. Thus they mean one thing to one person, another thing to another person. They are unintelligible to one generation, playing the pike staff to the next. And it is because of this complexity, this power to mean different things to different people, that they survive. Perhaps then one reason why we have no great poet, novelist, or critic writing today is that we refuse to allow words our liberty. We pin them down to one meaning, their useful meaning, the meaning which makes us catch the train. <laughs> I don't know how to describe that. It's... Uh... Very, very high English. Is that what you call that? Okay. That, I mean, is, that, is, the, that is the Queen's English. Right, right. And right. I'm, not, I'm not a scholar of this. That would be my best. My best. Yeah, it's very yeah, it's refined. Aristocratic, yes. Oh, high yeah. English. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which makes me wonder what she would make of the two of us. <laughs> You're troglodyte. <laughs> absolute, absolute <laughs> colonial scum. No, I don't, I don't know. First of all, you're a penniless mick, and you <laughs> and this this awful kraut thinks he can talk about my words. You know? No, but she she seems to have she really did have a, a sensitivity toward the perspectives of of other people. Well, you can tell just in that language, like she was saying. I mean, there's this great moment. She's like, all the words are equal. There's nothing. There's no, you know, there's no fine words or unfine. There's no cultivated or uncultivated. Well. She wasn't saying there weren't, but she was saying even though there were, they all were they all were on the same plane. When she talks about what the maiden uh, English language has gone a roving, a roving. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's something that I, I found. She's almost referring to words as like these entities living on some other plane. You know what I mean? And that's. That's powerful to me. I haven't really ever quite thought of it that way, but mm. now I kind of agree with her, except for the part about you can't make up new words. But other than that, <laughs> <laughs> other than that, yeah, she was that she was preaching, mm. she was laying it down for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, so hopefully it was worth it uh, to listen to the the oh, entirety of it. Yeah. yeah, and winding down, I, that should mm-hmm. be that should be person. I I think writing classes should that's something that if a someone was teaching a writing class and they had that on the first day that might be interesting and useful to the students mm-hmm. yeah 
Yeah, for sure. So here we're, we're dealing with somebody who was at the vanguard of society at the time of intellectual uh, society uh, of, of feminism, early feminism, uh, who essentially changed, helped to move the modern novel forward. Mm-hmm. She came from a family of atheists at a time where that would have been quite eccentric. Uh, she herself was a humanist, more or less. Mm-hmm. She was skeptical and a critic of Christianity. Uh, she described it as, as egotist, uh, egotism. Uh, she said of her husband, uh, Leonard, my Jew has more religion in one toenail, more human love in one hair. Mm. Uh, and in private letters, uh, described her, herself as an atheist. Mm. Uh, and he must have mm. been a special kind of guy too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know anything about him, but for her to have linked up with him and even though perhaps there wasn't as much romance throughout it she to to get into business with him to start this business with him and yeah he must yeah and to and to take him on despite his uh is the word pecuniary despite his uh (laughs) right yeah Yeah. despite the fact he did not have money the way that her class had money and of course the idea of him being a civil servant being someone who uh, probably helped a, a number of people or endeavored to. Yeah. He he probably brought a great deal of that managerial energy into the household for her. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. a happy merit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and there's a good yin yang there for sure. Mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. I would think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's here's a case where marriage is an institution as we understand it now wasn't always understood the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, an insight into her idea about God and and Christianity, or at least God, comes from Mrs. Dalloway, possibly, where she describes um, Clarissa Dalloway. Uh, she thought there were no gods, no one was to blame. And so she evolved this atheist's religion of doing good for the sake of goodness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so humanism, and humanism yeah. out front and center as right. part of this modernist identity. Uh, right. And again, it's worth thinking about how, for the time, how, uh, I don't want to say progressive, but maybe different that yeah, was. Yeah. This, this is a very different uh, life that we're encountering here. Mm-hmm. And despite the fact, again, that she was a trust fund, I think she really made made use of it. Yeah. Now, we're, we're coming to the very end here. And uh, do you know, Brad, how she, how she killed herself? Yeah, I mean, I, I do. Uh, I don't know if you want me to spoil it or you want to tell it, but no. Uh, how, why don't you? Why don't you yeah, describe it? She um, she loaded up her pockets with stones, and she walked into the river. In 1941, at age 59, Wolf died by drowning herself in the River Ouse at I think it's Lewes. It's a uh, in East Sussex in England. So she had the. I guess the the courage uh, or the the disposition. What's the yeah. right word mm-hmm. uh, to to drown herself, mm-hmm. which is yeah. a heck of a way to go. Uh, yeah. And given her her use of the the ocean and of water throughout her work, quite quite haunting. I was going to say we were talking about the book, the waves, and even to the lighthouse. And, mm-hmm. and there's a there's a great quote that I think I tweeted in the Art of Dark pod Twitter the other day that sort of dealt with this washing over you kind of thing. The blue Mm. was the only thing that lasted. It's interesting that she 
it's like she lived out a literary motif that she had been working through for you know for her the the, the extent of her career yeah there's a there's a quote from uh to the lighthouse and i'm going to read it here the monotonous fall of the waves on the beach which for the most part I'm getting interrupted, beat a measured and soothing tattoo to her thoughts and seemed consolingly to repeat over and over again as she sat with the children, the words of some uh, old cradle song murmured by nature, I am guarding you, I am your support. Hmm. But at other times, suddenly and unexpectedly, especially when her mind raised itself slightly from the task actually at hand, had no such kindly meaning but like a ghostly roll of drums remorselessly beat the measure of life, made one think of the destruction of the island and its engulfment in the sea and warned her whose day had slipped past in one quick doing after another, that it was all ephemeral, ephemeral as a rainbow. Mm-hmm. This is a woman who, uh, who had no problem looking at death mm-hmm. in her work. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it sounds like you know you go back to that other that other. You, what was it? You can never have peace if you don't look at life, or something along those lines. That quote of hers early mm-hmm. on, right? You know, well, for her mm-hmm. to to experience the death of her parents, pretty her mother quite young, and her her father pretty young, and 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 her brother, um, she had to look at it in the face, right? And yeah, she wasn't a. Uh, and you know she was doing her art was was she was going deep in her art right she wasn't just writing pot boilers and she wasn't just writing <laughs> nice little plotty things right. she was going she was she was doing the work of freud she was the mm-hmm. the um the right brain of doing the the right brain side of what freud's left brain stuff was doing right I think that we can make that case and yeah. also uh, giving us a unique perspective from a woman yeah. at, at a time where that was relatively new. Uh, yeah. I think this episode is going to be called the multitudinous seas of Virginia Woolf. <laughs> yeah. uh, I love that part in there where she goes, and of course, if you use the word in comedy and it immediately conjures up multitudinous seas, but not like, everyone knows. Yeah. yeah. I was like, <laughs> yeah. Hey, I don't know what incarnadine means. B, I've never heard the phrase multitudinous seas. I love it. I don't know mm-hmm. what it means exactly. Right. Uh, but yeah. Well, so winding down, uh, she did leave a suicide note to to Leonard, uh, the penniless uh, civil servant who formed Hogarth Press with her, looked mm-hmm. after her, supported her, uh, looked the other way as she had affairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here's what she wrote to him. Dearest, I feel certain I am going mad again. I feel we can't go through another of those terrible times, and I shan't recover this time. I begin to hear voices, and I can't concentrate. So I am doing what seems the best thing to do. You have given me the greatest possible happiness. You have been in every way all that anyone could be. I don't think two people could have been happier till this terrible disease came. I can't fight any longer. I know that I am spoiling your life, that without me, you could work. And you will, I know. You see, I can't even write this properly. I can't read. What I want to say is, I owe all the happiness of my life to you. You have been entirely patient with me and incredibly good. I want to say that everybody knows it. If anybody could have saved me, it would have been you. Everything has gone from me but the certainty of your goodness. 
I can't go on spoiling your life any longer. I don't think two people could have been happier than we have been. Wow. <laughs> it's a hell of a, hell of a yeah. uh, suicide note there. Yeah, it is. Mm. And you imagine the, just the, the, the depth and range of feeling that you would have reading that, you know, if you were him and Can't knowing. Yeah. And it was World War II. World, it was during World War II. The, yeah. the, their press had been destroyed in the Blitz. And really? uh, yeah. yeah. And I obviously she couldn't have um, her diary indicated she had become obsessed with death. It was darkening her mood. I think it's a case of almost like, I don't want to compare World War II to the COVID situation, but this idea of like, if somebody took the back door last year, you kind of go, okay, yeah. it, it, depending on the circumstances, there's a certain right. amount of like, you know, hell on earth had been raised up and the yeah. blitz is here and all the rest. Right. And this is a woman who was very sensitive and needed her time and her, and her peace in a room of her own right. uh, and all the rest. And, and so she, she decided to take that way out. And yeah. uh, she lived to be, I think it, I think it was from 41, 59 years old. Okay. So uh, pretty young, but yeah not maybe tragically young. Yeah. There was, there was some posthumous work, but that really is the, the life and the work uh, to mm. a degree uh, of the great Virginia Woolf. Wow. Uh, all right. <laughs> I can feel you've got a little bit of a load off your shoulders. Oh, just man. From, from getting to the end of that. <laughs> Good job, Kevin. That was, oh. that was illuminating. And, and now, you know, Man, if I can find some time, I'm going to go back to go back to one or two of her novels, and, and, and this is re reminding me how much how much I re deeply I respected her work. Yeah, I think I'm going to do the same. Uh, either through the audiobooks, or I'm a bit of a purist. I actually want to read, but it's so yeah. funny hearing her actual voice because I just <laughs> I'm going to read it in my own uh, slummy midwestern english right yeah. <laughs> like, you know? right. Right. Uh, there's no way i'll ever hear it in that voice no. it just is not gonna work but that's part of the beauty of the novel isn't it brad mm -hmm. it is yeah she gets to create whatever she wants to create it's not yeah. necessarily bound to what she sounds like yeah yeah it, every novel is a choose your own adventure book right like, yeah i think so <laughs> that's that's kind of the yeah, yeah. well we're going to close here by asking the question. Oh, and then, of course, for people who uh, subscribe to the Patreon, Brad and I are going to deconstruct the episode on an After Dark episode at our Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. We're also on Twitter at artofdarkpod. Uh, you can find us there. Brad and I are way too online. We should probably get off and, and uh, do some actual uh, reading. But, but there we are. We'll be there reading Twitter. You can interact with us. Uh, we're real life uh, people. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, the question I like to, we always ask at the end of the episode is, uh, Brad, what would uh, Virginia Woolf be doing now? <sighs> mm. I mean, she needed to write, right? So she'd be writing to some extent. Yeah, I don't know. I don't see how she would. I don't know how well she would operate in the uh, in the Twitter sphere, though. You know, she must have had a little bit of a sense of humor. This whole dreadnought ho hoax thing. So you know, maybe. Well, and she wrote she wrote her essays too. She was she wasn't just this novelist. She wanted right. to engage with the culture. So I think she'd. She strikes me as somebody who possibly would be a professor. She could now. be a little bit of like a Camille Paglia sort of person. Yeah, like yeah, a little bit of a type. Paglia type, yeah, for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah a firebrand. 
yeah. of, of some order. It's sort of hard to imagine, but she was, this is another figure like Wild, where it's their world, we're just walking through it. Right. These are the people who a hundred years ago uh, and, and more created the world that we inhabit now. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I do think, think that we have to be wary of throwing away the entirety of the 20th century or the entirety of the post-war period. Uh, if it means also throwing out writers of, of this ilk uh, yeah. or trying to read them through to contemporary uh a lens or a fixture, the idea that you yeah. might look at Virginia Woolf and say, ah, too privileged. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. She has nothing of value to contribute to the conversation. Right. Because she yeah. came from, she came from money or whatnot. Right. right. I just give her a read. And yeah. uh, if you're not the reading type, put on one of the audiobooks and, and give it a listen. Uh, yeah. If you're inclined toward essays, uh, a room of one's own is outstanding. If you're inclined to the novels, I think to the lighthouse, uh, is a great place to start. Mrs. Dalloway is great too. Uh, these are wonderful novels. Novels. They're modern, but they're more accessible than, say, Joyce. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They definitely are. You can you can read it through, and you can understand what happened, and you don't need to know, you know, the nuances of of like bygone mythology <laughs> to, to understand right. what's happening. It, yeah. yeah. Particular corners in Dublin. Uh, yeah. You don't need to know where <laughs> right. they're located and why it's right. funny that so and so would be <laughs> right. doing X. You right. know, right. when much love to Joyce as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. He brought Joyce different vibe. Right. Yeah, yeah, Joyce broke ground, and and Virginia mm-hmm. really went into the mind mm-hmm. and consciousness and uh, class and this post-Victorian uh, looking back, but then also looking forward after the the mm-hmm. first, the first war, mm-hmm. uh, which affected everything. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Brad, that was a lot of fun. That was, uh, we got through our first suicide. Yes, we did it. Yeah. We did it. <laughs> All right. And now, and now we're going to talk for, uh, you know, 30, 45 minutes on after dark. If you want to yep. listen to more, it's at patreon.com slash art of dark pot. I'm Kevin Couchman. And this is my, my good pal, uh, Brad Kelly, Brad. Yeah. All right, man. Oh that yeah, was- next week or next oh, yeah. next episode is uh, Rod Serling, the creator of the Twilight Zone. And it's weird you start thinking about this. Like they were alive at the same time, right? Virginia Woolf and Rod Serling, and it doesn't feel like they should be, but they totally were. So that's going to be interesting. That's we're 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 telling a little bit of a, the history of culture with this show as well, too. So I I think that's fun. I cannot wait. Yeah. All right, Brad. All right. Take care.